And we thank God for our veterans. And if you are a veteran, we don't want to embarrass you in any way, but we do want to pray a prayer of blessing. So I'm going to ask you to please stand and remain standing so that we, we can pray for you as a congregation. And once again, let's thank the Lord for all of our veterans. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the men and women that have served our serving in our armed forces. We don't take them and the wars they've had to fight for granted. So we just ask a prayer of blessing, and we're thankful for our country that at least once a year we pause, we stop, we remember, we acknowledge, and we say thank you. We wouldn't enjoy the freedoms that we have today if it wasn't for their commitment, dedication, and sacrifice. So, Lord, may they sense your presence with them today in our services all weekend. And may your blessing be with them and their families, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We're in a mini-series uh, for the next few weeks that I've entitled Truth Heist. You'll know more about that title in uh, just a moment. But we all know we're in a titanic struggle, uh, truth against lies, titanic struggle to advance uh, the kingdom of God. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, but the violent take it by force. And uh, although we're motivated by love, we need to be assertive and aggressive in our faith in advancing the cause of Jesus in our generation. And I want to open up with a couple of quotes, one from a great theologian, John Calvin, another from uh, what you might say a great atheist, but uh, even atheists say things that are true, whether they give God credit for the truth within their statement or not, it's still true. John Calvin said this, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Many in pulpits today and many uh, in the church today are remaining completely silent while God's truth is being attacked. Frederick Nietzsche said this, sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. That's pretty deep. I found this, uh, this picture on the internet and it reveals uh, that truth very vividly. Most people don't want the truth. Most people want constant reassurance what they believe is true. Most people can't accept the truth because it destroys their illusion of reality. And that's called cognitive dissonance. But what is truth? Truth is not subjective. Truth is not what you think or I think. Truth is not what you feel or I feel. Truth is not what a pope or a president or a priest or a pastor or a prophet uh, or a politician says. Uh, Truth is what God's Word says. Truth is what God has already said. And Jesus said, thy word is truth. And so in chaotic times, in confusing times, we must go to the source of truth. And God is veracity. God is truth. And we must know the truth. For in knowing the truth, Jesus said, you would be set free. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And here is the Word of the Lord. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, 
and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, for he is referred to in Scripture as the Spirit of truth. And we thank you for truth being spoken into our hearts and lives. May we be intellectually honest. May we be sincere in our hearts to hear and weigh the truth in our own souls today. I pray and ask your blessing in the name that's above every name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Man didn't come from below, but from above. Man created. One of the greatest statements in all of history, of all of human existence, is this right here in Genesis 1. That man was not an accident, not some cosmic accident. Man was created by God. In his image and likeness, every human being living today, no matter your color, your creed, your race, your beliefs, your practices, doesn't change this one fact. All of us are created, and we're created in the image. We are all image bearers of God. And this is why Satan attacks the image of God and attacks and wants to bring division among the people of this world because we all come from the same original parents, believe it or not. Adam and Eve. The same blood flows through our veins. No matter what part of the country or part of the world that we live in, we were created. So everyone is a creature of God, but not everyone is a child of God. The only way you can become a child of God is by surrendering your life to Christ, the Lord, the Savior, the risen King. Accepting Jesus into your life, when you do that, you become born again. You become a brand new person in Christ, and you become a member of the family of God a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God. But the great debate has been from time and eternity, the origin of man. The Greeks reported that Plato defined man once as a two-legged uh, uh, creature, a two-legged animal without feathers. Diogenes, in mockery to that ridiculous statement that man is just a two-legged animal without feathers, Diogenes, it says, is recorded that he plucked a rooster and brought it into the assembly, brought it into the academy to mock such a foolish statement. No, we're not some cosmic accident. We were not, we're not featherless animals. We're not naked apes, you know. We were created by God in his image and in his likeness. Now, in this series, the things that we're going to be addressing, my words uh, uh, may sound strange, may, might be comparable to speaking a foreign language, which begs the question, why? It's because of the mutilation of objective truth in our culture today. I kind of compare it to the celebration of Halloween where people disguise their true selves behind costumes. Today, we have very ghastly and horrific lies being disguised as truth in some award-winning and elaborate costumes. But none, nonetheless, it's still a lie. No matter how you decorate it, no matter how you camouflage it, no matter how you dress it up, a lie is still a lie. And only the truth can shatter those lies. There's a parable that's attributed to the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And one night in his story that he tells, uh, wrote about a group of thieves, they broke into a jewelry store. But rather than stealing anything, they simply switched all the price tags. The next day, no one could tell what was valuable and what was cheap. Matter of fact, the expensive jewelry had suddenly become cheap, and the costume jewelry, which had been virtually worthless, all of a sudden became a worth great, a great value. The customers who thought that they were purchasing valuable gems were getting fakes. Those who couldn't afford the higher priced items were actually leaving the store with treasures. 
because the value of things, the price tag of things that were valuable are now cheap, and the things that were cheap are now valuable, and then we're seeing that in our culture today. Satan is called the thief. Jesus referred to him as the thief. He comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So Satan has performed the greatest heist in history, the robbing of what is valuable and what is true. What should be valuable has become valueless in the U.S. in our lifetime. Now, thank God we still celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day. I don't know why those haven't been canceled yet. I guess the day will come when they will change those days, Father's Day to Mother's Day. We'll call it they day because that's the proper pronoun, I guess, today. They day. But I propose that we have a traditional family day. One day in a calendar year where we here in the United States celebrate God's definition of the family. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Traditional family day. And you see, my friend, a family does consist of a father and a mother according to God's original design, along with children, either by birth or, as we heard in that powerful testimony a moment ago, by adoption. How beautiful that story was and is. You might ask the question, is a single parent home considered a family? Absolutely. Sometimes life happens, whether by death, by decision, or by divorce. You find yourself in service today as a single parent. Our love goes out to you. Nothing more critical, nothing more challenging, more difficult than to be a, a single mom or a single dad raising children all alone. And that's why you need a church. That's why you need the support of a local church. That's why within a church there's that encouragement, there's that support, there's that help in your time of need. And there are positive role models for your kids. If dad is gone and not a part of their life, I'm sorry for that. Or if mom is gone and not a part of their life, I'm sorry for that. I was raised in a single parent home. I am touched with the feelings of your infirmity. But here's what I know. God's a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow, and he's a friend to everyone, and that friend sticks closer than a brother. Can we thank God for Jesus? Man's most important institution is not government, not even the church. It's the family. Before the government ever uh, was instituted by God, uh, before the temple was ever built or the tabernacle or official gathering of worship was ever established by God, the home, the family was instituted by God. And I know it is a sacrifice to get married, and it is a sacrifice to stay married, especially today, but we must stay committed to the covenant of marriage. And it is also a sacrifice to have children, either by birth or by adoption, and to raise those children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but the survival of the human race is dependent on it, and I can't overstate that in the message today. Perhaps in this message I am sounding the alarm. And I'm going to reveal to you the current state of the family and the, the, where it's trending, but I'm also, at the end of the message, going to give you hope. And I want to point out some of the bright spots that are happening in and with the family in the 21st century. First of all, the family, we know, is Satan's ultimate prize. He wants to destroy the family it's because it's a miniature replica. It's a replica of the kingdom of God. And it represents the very image of God. And so he is assaulting it like never before. So here is the current state of the family. Today, 59 countries representing 44% of the world's population are below the replacement fertility rate. As renowned demographer Dr. Joel uh, Kotkin, who is a fellow at the Urban Studies at Chapman University in Orange, California, he writes about demographic, social, and economic trends in the U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U U
For millennia, the family has stood as the central institution of society, often changing but always essential. But across the world, from China to North America, particularly in Europe, family ties are weakening with the potential to undermine one of our last few precious bits of privacy and intimacy. How necessary the family is in its under assault today. Anthropologist Margaret Mead once said, no matter how many communes anyone invents, the family always creeps back. There's something sacred, and I'll end the message by elaborating on this, but there's something eternal and something sacred about the family as God designed it divinely and gave it to us as a gift, the family. The demographic trajectory is not promising for families, though, presently. Even before the pandemic, family formation and birth rates were declining throughout much of the known world. Compounding that problem was the pandemic, people being isolated and in their homes. And not just in the West, but in East Asia, parts of South America, even the Middle East, the decline of birth rate is alarming. Matter of fact, we're kind of like living in another dark ages. And during the dark ages, it was a period of global, global demographic stagnation, as many have written about it, uh, caused by famine and pestilence and widespread celibacy, poverty, corruption in religion and in politics. And the family received a direct blow during the, the Middle Ages. We're seeing almost a resurgence of the Middle Ages today. Our societies have become increasingly lonely and isolated, with single men, according to the research, being hit the hardest. Now more than ever, the church and the community that it offers people of all walks of life is indispensable. It is essential. It is so important. And in this current attack that's happening to families, children are not faring well. We just see that by their addiction to social media. Today, children around the world live bound and chained to social media without parents, without siblings, without two parents. Increasingly, the demand on that single parent trying to raise these children, children are feeling increasingly isolated, and the pandemic hasn't helped with schools being shut down. And in many cities, uh, churches during that uh, period of time being shut down, kids being isolated and alone and going to social media for that support. Since 1960, the percentage of people in the United States living alone has grown, get this, from 12% in 1960 to 28% today. The percentage of American women who are now mothers is at the lowest point in over three decades. Intact families are rarer, and solitary living is more common today than ever before. In the United States, the rate of single parenthood has grown from 10% in 1960 to over 40% today. And this is bad news, in particular for minority communities, as the researchers point out, because intact families tend to have fewer problems related to prison, school, poverty, and addiction. And the numbers, friend, the numbers are irrefutable. And once again, that's why there's hope, there's encouragement for struggling families, for struggling single parents. That's why you need to be a part of a community of faith. And, you know, if anything, it, it gives you a break. You know, uh, you can come on Wednesday night and be a part of worship and teaching while your children are being ministered to in children's church. Or on a weekend like this, you can come and you could be fed while your children are being ministered to and having fun and learning about Jesus. 
And we create opportunities for you as a single parent and as a a two-parent family to receive encouragement and support because the most challenging, difficult assignment given to us by God is the rearing of children. But oh, is it worth it? And civilization is dependent on you, mom, on you, dad. So thank God for moms and thank God for dads. Let's give God praise for parents. Hallelujah. Get this, nearly half a century ago, 50 years ago, Harvard sociologist Daniel Bell foresaw a rising what he wrote 50 years ago. He saw into the future what he called a new class with values profoundly different from the values that existed at that time, what we would call traditional middle-class values of hard work, self-control, personal responsibility, hard work, self-control, personal responsibility. Those values, as those that study trends and study demographies and study families, they form the essence of family values. Hard work, personal responsibility, and self-control. Instead, this Harvard sociologist, Daniel Bell, anticipated a new type of individualism. He saw this 50 years in advance. That this new type or this new class of individuals would be unmoored from religion and family, dissolving the foundations of middle-class culture, what we are seeing today, which is why this message is so necessary and so important, that no matter what season of life you find yourself in, no matter what stage of life you find yourself in, that we all must celebrate the sacred eternal nature of family as God intended it, as God gave it. We must be defenders and protectors of family. Our existence is dependent upon that. Matter of fact, many in the millennial generation, they actually see giving up marriage, giving up having children as a way of, get this, saving the planet. That's what they're being indoctrinated with in our universities. By not getting married or not having children, you can reduce the carbon impact that each additional human being brings to our planet. How bizarre is that, my friend? God once again said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, be joined to the wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he gave us the Genesis mandate. You are to replenish, you're to multiply, you are to bear fruit, and you are to replenish the earth. The earth is replenished by men and women getting married and having children and raising families. This is God's intention. This is God's plan. And this is God's call for all of us. This is even being promoted in the economic forum. They're also promoting uh, no GDP growth, less consumption, smaller houses, less class mobility, which this pandemic was a gift to governments, to people in places of high power because they've been able to test their powers. They've been able to see how they can control the masses, how they can manipulate the masses, how they can cause you to be isolated in your home and keep you from even walking out the front door of your house. In many countries to this day, it's still happening. And then you have the feminists and the gender activists who celebrate the decline of the family for ideological reasons. The late feminist icon Betty Friedan once compared housewives to people marching voluntarily into a concentration camp. How many know one of the highest callings in life is to be a mother and to take care of your family and to take care of your home. I salute you. 
the whole transgender movement is Satan's attack on Imago Dei, the image of God. It is literally the mutilation of God's image in human beings in conjunction with the rise of godless social communist government policies which are dead set on one thing, one thing. Once again, be intellectually honest. In the study of history, a hundred million souls were lost because of social communist governments and policies. Not because of religion, not because of religious fanaticism. Yes, people have died, and religious fanaticism is its own evil in, in, in the history of mankind. But nothing compares to the evil of socialist communist governments and the slaughter of 100 million souls. That's what's at stake. And there's one goal, one goal of these socialist communist governments, friend, and that is ultimate control. And God is the great liberator. And one of the greatest stories in all of history is the story of Exodus, where a powerful God purchased and redeemed a powerless people who had been in slavery under tyranny for 400 years. And God raised up a man by the name of Moses. And Moses, with a rod and Aaron and God, walked into the most powerful nation in the world at that time and spoke truth to power and spoke on God's behalf and said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship me. Freedom is about Worshiping God and ultimate freedom comes from God. Come on, let's thank God for ultimate freedom. I got away from my notes and preached it a little bit there. I do apologize. <laughs> China. China. Of all places, communist, socialist China, they themselves are embracing a new celebration of family values. This is in the news. Once terrified about overpopulation, one-child policy has now been changed. China's leaders are now seeking ways to transform childbearing and family formation into socialist values because they understand what's at stake. Their existence is what is at stake. And the human race really has reached a critical inflection point. And we must decide. Either we're going to celebrate the family and family values or we're going to witness the slow demise of human civilization. That's the urgency, friend. Now, despite what some New Age ide ideologues may claim, virtually all of the empirical, once again, be intellectually honest, please. Virtually all the empirical evidence indicates that family-friendly society is happier, healthier, and more sustainable. That is why we must continue to be promoters and defenders of tr the traditional family as God has designed it and defined it for his glory and for our good. Now, here are some of the, well, if we're going to clap, let's clap. Unto unto the Lord. And here are some of the bright spots. Something as simple as remote work from home is family friendly. Here's the silver lining from the pandemic. Sometimes it can also be challenging, as this picture reveals. <laughs> but it's worth it. This is a family-friendly policy that if your organization, business, and or company permits it or allows it, take advantage of it. 
Remote work will enable American, America's millennials and Zoomers to raise children more easily. It's a positive thing. Remote work makes parenting easier because it frees up five to ten hours per week that would otherwise be spent in commuting or preparing for that commute. It allows parents to reside in less costly locations further from the commercial centers where they can afford larger homes. And for the most part, remote work can be more easily adjusted to accommodate family-friendly schedules. So something as simple as what's come out of this pandemic and people being able to work from home can be very family-friendly and promote family life. Second of all is the next family awakening. And hopefully it's not like this last awakening. We don't need this kind of attitude. We don't need angry women. We need passionate women. Hallelujah. And as millennials and Zoomers become more affluent, they will begin marrying and having children at higher rates, widely expected. It's kind of like what happened uh, during the Great Depression, World War II. Uh, the family was severely attacked, and marriages weren't, they were stagnant, they weren't happening, births were not happening. And then what happened after World War II? What, what, I'm a part of that generation. Many of you are part of that. What do they call that, uh, that, this generation? The, the baby boomers, right? Because all these men came back from war, and guess what they did? <laughs> Biology 101. They got married. They did what married people do, and babies started showing up. Thank God for a next baby boom coming after this pandemic. I declare that in Jesus' name. You say, what's really the, the big takeaway from this message? It's this. Christians must come to the rescue of the family. My third point, Christians to the rescue. You're the hope of civilization. So the big takeaway of this message, no matter what your walk of life may be, the season of life may be, some, are, some of you may be called to be single, but you still need to be defenders, promoters of, of family, as God defines family. So the big takeaway of this message is this. If you're in here and you're over 18 years of age, I commission you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, serve the Lord with all your heart, find a job, and get married as soon as you can to the right woman. Because civilization is dependent on that. We need young men to have a vision of God. Young men, according to God's timing and God's will, to get married. And marriage is more than just a license. Marriage is more than a piece of paper. Marriage is more than love. Marriage is more than the feeling of love. Marriage, according to the Bible... God defines it as a covenant, and therefore, it is something that is sacred, eternally sacred. The, the family is eternally sacred. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, the fifth of the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment that deals with men and our relationship with one another. The first four deal with God. The next six of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with one another. And the very first one that's mentioned, before murder, before lying, cheating, stealing, and adultery, is give honor to your father and your mother. Give honor to parenting. Because parenting, there's honor that's associated with being a parent. By birth or by adoption, being a parent. There's great honor in that. And then Hebrews 13, 4, let's read it out loud together. Marriage is honorable in every way, so husbands and wives should be faithful to each other. God will judge those who commit sexual sins, especially those who commit adultery. Why is God against adultery? Why is God against cohabitation or living with one another outside of a covenant of marriage. And I don't say this to induce any kind of shame or guilt. I, I'm a sinner like the rest. All of us are sinners. We all miss the mark. This in no way is to 
pontificate and to look down on anyone that may be in this service today or next service and you're living with that person, cohabitating. But it's to remind you of God's intention, God's plan for your life. And the beauty of marriage, that it is a holy covenant. And because it is a holy covenant, and because I believe in your heart you want to do what's right and you want to love God and you want to honor God, or why would you even be in church? Why would you even claim to be a Christian? So that's, that's settled. You want to do what's right and you love God. And because you love God and you want to do what's right, the honorable thing, the noble thing, and the right thing to do, if you're living with a woman right now and sharing the same bed with her, the noble, honorable thing to do is put a ring on her finger, celebrate the covenant of marriage, and be united. Well, we're not ready for that, Pastor Carl. Then you're not ready for being in bed together, I might add. <laughs> then maybe what you might need to do is put the relationship on, on pause and uh, go live with mom, go live with dad, go live with a friend, separate, figure out life and how complicated life might be right now for you, and then reassess how and when you can put God first in that relationship and honor God. And if you, my friend, will honor God, God will honor you, and God will bless you. God's way is always the best way. Once we, we did a series on the family many years ago, and we did a mass wedding. We had one service where everyone that wanted to get married, we, they all came to the altar, and I married them all, like dozens and dozens, all at the same time. Praise God. We'll, we'll do whatever we can to encourage you and to support you because, friend, you must know we love you and God loves you. The first miracle that Jesus performed wasn't in the temple, wasn't in a, the Roman Senate. Uh, it, it wasn't in a field somewhere. It was at a wedding celebration. God forever placing his approval and his blessing on the covenant of marriage. Now, I'm going to say some things that might sound very controversial in closing. But we need to mention and speak about the eternal sacredness of the family. Now, if you consider Christianity as a tree, I've, said, I've shared this before, but let me remind you. If you look at Christianity as a tree, there's the trunk of the tree. That's Christianity. But then you have branches. You have, and of that, the trunk of Christianity, you have Catholicism and Protestantism. Now, there are some Christians that, that believe that Catholics can't be saved. Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, Catholics are as much Christian as Protestants are because when it comes to the essential doctrines, I, I used to be a Catholic, right? Uh, when it comes to the essential doctrines, Catholics and Protestants are identical. The deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the Holy Trinity, the death, burial, the physical death, physical burial, and the physical resurrection of Jesus on the third day, the essentials of the Christian doctrine both Catholics and Protestants believe identical. Our Bibles are identical except for the Catholic Bible has 12 extra books called the Apocrypha that shouldn't, that shouldn't be in the Bible, okay? So just like Catholics have some things that aren't biblical that they practice, how many know Protestants have some things that aren't biblical and that they shouldn't be practicing? So we think of Christianity, here's the trunk, and then Catholicism, Protestant, and then within Protestantism, you've got the Church of Christ, the Church of God in Christ, the Church of God, the Assemblies of God. You have Pentecostal, Methodist, Episcopalian. I mean, it gets confusing. So at the end of the day, what matters most is, are you born again and do you love Jesus? You can be a Catholic on your way to heaven, or you can be a Catholic on your way to hell. You can be a Protestant on your way to heaven, or you can be a Protestant on your way to hell. What makes the difference is not the religious tag that you wear, 
The difference is, have you been born again? Does Christ live in your heart, and do you love Jesus, and are you following Christ, and do you believe the teachings of Scripture? That's what's important. But there's one thing the Catholics do that the Protestants can learn from, and how they elevate the sacredness of family. Now, they have a couple of doctrines that aren't biblical, because in the Catholic Church, there's what's called ex cathedra, uh, ex cathedra, where the Pope has infallibility. In other words, the Pope could say this is biblical, and whether it's in the Bible or not, it's biblical. That, that's not a good thing to follow, but they can do that. It's happened twice in the last few hundred years. Uh, in 1854, the, pap, the, 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 the papal, papal infallibility was defined in the First Vatican Council in, 18, in 1870 and was presented with the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Now, as Christians, we believe in the miraculous conception of Christ in the Virgin Mary, the miraculous conception. It was a supernatural by the Holy Spirit that this young Virgin Mary conceived. The Catholics believe in the Immaculate Conception. What's the difference between the Immaculate Conception and the Miraculous Conception? The Immaculate Conception is they believe that it happened by God, but they also believe that Mary was sinless. How many know Mary was a fallen, sinful human being like the rest of us and needed a Savior? And the Bible verifies that. She even called her own son she gave birth to as her Savior because she needed a Savior. So we don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. We believe in the Miraculous Conception. There's another doctrine that was established by the Pope, and uh, it was uh, defined in 1950. It was what they called the bodily assumption of Mary. What's the bodily assumption of Mary? Once again, not biblical, but there's a point to this. The Catholics believed in the, in the assumption of Mary that just as Christ ascended, and that's in the Bible, in the book of Acts, Christ ascended visibly before the disciples on, the, on his, the ascension of Christ. They believe that Mary also ascended, the assumption of Mary, that she was taken up to heaven. How many know that didn't happen? It's not in the Bible. Now, I, I love Mary. When I get to heaven, I, I want to get Mary's autograph if, if there's autographs in heaven. I want to be like, you're an awesome lady. What was it like being, you know, uh, engaged and, and the holy, an angel comes to you? And, man, what was it like carrying the Savior of the world in your womb, giving birth to the Savior? I want to have an interview with Mary. She's awesome, but I don't pray to Mary. I don't worship Mary. I worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And when I pray, I pray to the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this was an important doctrine, once again, silver lining, because one of the fathers of modern psychology, Carl Jung, he talks about the promulgation of the Catholic doctrine, the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, as one of the most important moments in the history of the world. Why would this psychologist declare the Assumption of Mary one of the most important moments in the history of the world? He called it a turning point because at that moment, the feminine aspects of life was given a place of highest importance, which really the, the story of Christmas and a virgin conceiving of the Holy Spirit and bringing the Savior into the world forever elevated to the highest level once and for all how valuable it is number one to be a woman and number two as a woman to give birth to a child there is nothing as sacred as womanhood 
and birthing children or adopting children, raising children, mothering children, loving children, and supporting mothers and supporting life. And that's why as Christ's followers, we're believers in life and we're defenders of life. And that's why we identify ourselves as pro-life because we believe in the sacredness of human life, all humans created in the image and likeness of God. Once again, something's true, whether the people that speak the truth give God credit or glory for it or not. So how much more when our Catholic brethren, they actually have one day out of the calendar year that they dedicate to the celebration of the Holy Family. This is interesting. They actually have a prayer in that Mass that's, that's quite scriptural, that's theologically accurate. Once again, there are many things the Catholic Church could learn from the Protestant anything the Protestants might be able to learn from the Catholics, one of which is the sacredness and the eternal nature of the family. And in that special Mass, they have this prayer, and I'm quoting, Lord Jesus Christ, who was subject to Joseph and Mary, you have consecrated domestic life with unspeakable power. Teach us by the example of your holy family and with the help of each member and help us live in eternal community. That, my friend, is a powerful prayer that speaks to the eternal, sacred nature of family, that God is a family-oriented God. He's called our Father. And Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he said, pray after this manner, our, our Father. Not even my Father, but our Father. And if Jesus is Lord of your life, no matter your color, your creed, whether you're in Catholicism or Protestantism, if you have made Jesus the Lord of your life, your Father is my Father. That makes us brothers or sisters because God has one family, one Lord, one Christ, one God, one heaven, one Savior, and we're all one big family. Hallelujah. And God loves the family. And no matter the struggles that we have in our families and the struggles we have with family members, we must never give up on the family. And we must, no matter what your experience has been like, and I'm sorry if you've had some bad, painful experiences in marriage or in family, and God does make exception for divorce when it comes to adultery, abandonment, and abuse. And I can defend all three biblically and theologically, whether you agree with what I just said or not. There are times that sometimes in the best interest of your own soul and well-being and that of your children that you have to walk away from a marriage. And so I don't shame or condemn anyone, but I know that no matter where you've been or what has happened in your life, God can restore and God can redeem what might seem like the most unredeemable places and parts of our life and experiences of our life. God is the great restorer. But no matter what, we need to defend the family, promote the family, believe in the family, love the family, serve the family, and be dedicated to the family because our existence as human beings are dependent upon that. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you, and I pray for every person here, everyone watching online, no matter where they're at, no matter their walk of life, no matter their struggles or where they've been, I pray your grace and blessing and power to be with them, to be with those struggling marriages, bring healing and restoration. Those that may be walking through a season of separation, bring healing and restoration. 
Those that are going through a rough spot in their family with maybe a wayward child, God, give them grace and mercy. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your divine power now manifesting in in their lives and in those circumstances and in those situations. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, or you'd like to rededicate your life to Christ, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud. But it will only mean something if you say it with your own mouth and mean it from your own heart. Christ will come into your life and change your life from the inside out. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart, come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a hand of praise, church family. God bless you.